Chapter Sixteen of The Virginian. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Virginian by Owen Wister. Chapter Sixteen: The Game and the Nation. Last Act. It has happened to you, has it not, to wake in the morning and wonder for a while where on earth you are? Thus I came half to life in the caboose, hearing voices but not the actual words at first. But presently, Hathaway, said someone more clearly, Portland, 1291. This made no special stir in my intelligence, and I drowsed off again to the pleasant rhythm of the wheels. The little shock of stopping next brought me to, somewhat, with the voices still round me, and when we were again in motion I heard, Rosebud, Portland, 1279. These figures jarred me awake, and I said, it was 1291 before, and sat up in my blankets. The greeting they vouchsafed and the sight of them clustering expressionless in the caboose brought last evening's uncomfortable memory back to me. Our next stop revealed how things were going today. Forsyth, one of them read on the station, Portland, 1266. They were counting the lessening distance westward. This was the undercurrent of war. It broke on me as I procured fresh water at Forsyth and made some toilet in their stolid presence. We were drawing nearer the rawhide station, the point, I mean, where you left the railway for the new mines. Now rawhide station lay this side of Billings. The broad path of desertion would open ready for their feet when the narrow path to duty and sunk creek was still some fifty miles more to wait. Here was Trampas's great strength. He need make no move, meanwhile, but lie low for the immediate temptation to front and waylay them, and win his battle over the deputy foreman. But the Virginian seemed to find nothing save enjoyment in this sunny September morning, and ate his breakfast at Forsyth serenely. That meal done, and that station gone, our caboose took up again its easy trundle by the banks of the Yellowstone. The mutineers sat for a while, digesting in idleness. "'What's your scar?' inquired one at length, inspecting casually the neck of his neighbor. "'Foolishness,' the other answered. "'Yourn?' "'Mine.' "'Well, I don't know, but I prefer to have myself to thank for a thing,' said the first. "'I was displaying myself,' continued the second. "'One day last summer it was.' We come on a big snake by Tory Creek Corral. The boys got bettin' pretty lively that I dasn't make my word good as to dealin' with him, so I loped my cayuse full tilt by Mr. Snake, and swung down and catched him up by the tail from the ground, and cracked him same as a whip, and snapped his head off. You saw it done? he said to the audience. The audience nodded wearily. But the loose head flew agin me, and the fangs caught. I was pretty sick for a while. "'It don't pay to be clumsy,' said the first man. "'If you'd snapped the snake away from you instead of toward you, its head would have whirled off into the brush, same as they do with me.' "'How like a knife-cut your scar looks,' said I. "'Don't it?' said the snake-snapper. "'There's many that gets fooled by it.' "'An antelope knows a snake is his enemy,' said another to me. Ever seen a buck circling round and round a rattler?
"'I have always wanted to see that,' said I heartily, for this I knew to be a respectable piece of truth. "'It's worth seeing,' the man went on. "'After the buck gets close in, he gives an almighty jump up in the air, and down comes his four hoofs in a bunch right on top of Mr. Snake. Cuts him all to hash. Now you tell me how the buck knows that.' Of course I could not tell him, and again we sat in silence for a while, friendlier silence, I thought. "'A skunk'll kill you worse than a snake-bite,' said another presently. "'No, I don't mean that way,' he added, for I had smiled. "'There is a brown skunk down in Arkansas, kind of prairie dog brown. Littler than our variety he is. And he is mad the whole year round, same as a dog gets. Only the dog has a spell and dies, but this here Arkansas skunk is mad right along, and it don't seem to interfere with his business in other respects.' "'Well, suppose you're camping out, and suppose it's a hot night, or you're in a hurry, and you've made camp late, or anyway you haven't got inside any tent, but you have just bedded down in the open. Skunk comes traveling along and walks on your blankets. You're warm. He likes that, same as a cat does. And he tramps with pleasure and comfort, same as a cat. And you move. You get bit, that's all. And you die of hydrophobia. Ask anybody.' "'Most extraordinary,' said I. "'But did you ever see a person die from this?' "'No, sir, never happened to. My cousin at Bald Knob did.' "'Died?' "'No, sir, saw a man.' "'But how do you know they're not sick skunks?' "'No, sir, they're well skunks, well as anything. You'll not meet skunks in any state of the Union more robust than them in Arkansas, and thick.' "'That's awful true,' sighed another. I have buried hundreds of dollars worth of clothes in Arkansas. "'Why didn't you travel in a sponge-bag?' inquired Scipio, and this brought a slight silence. "'Speaking of bites,' spoke up a new man, "'how's that?' he held up his thumb. "'My!' breathed Scipio. "'Must have been a lion.' The man wore a wounded look. "'I was hunting owl eggs for a botanist from Boston,' he explained to me. "'Chiropodist, weren't he?' said Scipio. "'Or maybe a sonambulator?' "'No, honest,' protested the man with the thumb, so that I was sorry for him and begged him to go on. "'I'll listen to you,' I assured him. And I wondered why this politeness of mine should throw one or two of them into stifled mirth. Scipio, on the other hand, gave me a disgusted look, and sat back sullenly for a moment, and then took himself out on the platform where the Virginian was lounging. "'The young feller wore knee-pants and ever-so-thick spectacles with a half-moon cut in em,' resumed the narrator, "'and he carried a tin box strung to a strap I took for his lunch till it flew open on him and a horn-toad hustled out. Then I was sure he was a botanist, or whatever you say they're called.' Well, he would have owl eggs, them little prairie owl that some claim can turn their head clean around and keep a watchin' you, only that's nonsense. We was ridin' through that prairie dog town, used to be on the flat just after you crossed the south fork of Powder River on the buffalo trail, and I said I'd dig an owl nest out for him if he was willin' to camp till I'd dug it. I wanted to know about them owls some myself, if they did live with the dogs and snakes, you know. He broke off, appealing to me. "'Oh, yes,' I told him eagerly. 
So while the botanist went glaring around the town with his glasses to see if he could spot a prairie dog and an owl using the same hole, I was digging in a hole I'd seen an owl run down. And that's what I got. He held up his thumb again. The snake! I exclaimed. Yes, sir, Mr. Rattler was keeping house that day. Took me right there. I hauled him out of the hole hanging to me. Eight rattles. Eight, said I, a big one. Yes, sir, thought I was dead. But the woman, the woman, said I. Yes, woman, didn't I tell you the botanist had his wife along? Well, he did, and she acted better than the man, for he was rosin' his head and shoutin' he had no whiskey, and he didn't guess his knife was sharp enough to amputate my thumb, and none of us chewed, and the doctor was twenty miles away, and if he had only remembered to bring his ammonia, well, he was screechin' out most everything he knew in the world, and without arranging it any, neither. But she just clawed his pocket and burrowed and kept yellin', "'Give him the stone, Augustus!' And she whipped out one of them engine medicine stones, first one I ever seen, and she clapped it on to my thumb, and it started in right away. "'What did it do?' said I. "'Sucked, like blotting paper does. Soft and funny it was, and gray. They get em from elk's stomachs, you know. And when it had sucked the poison out of the wound, off it falls on my thumb by itself.' and I thanked the woman for saving my life that capable and keeping her head that cool. I never knowed how excited she had been till afterward. She was awful shocked. "'I suppose she started to talk when the danger was over,' said I, with deep silence around me. "'No, she didn't say nothing to me, but when her next child was born, it had eight rattles.' Din now rose wild in the caboose. They rocked together. The enthusiast beat his knee tumultuously. And I joined them. Who could help it? It had been so well conducted from the imperceptible beginning. Fact and falsehood blended with such perfect art. And this last, an effect so new, made with such world-old material. I cared nothing that I was the victim, and I joined them. But ceased, feeling suddenly somehow estranged or chilled. It was in their laughter. The loudness was too loud, and I caught the eyes of Trampas fixed upon the Virginian with exultant malevolence. Scipio's disgusted glance was upon me from the door. Dazed by these signs, I went out on the platform to get away from the noise. There the Virginian said to me, "'Cheer up. You'll not be so easy for him that away next season.' He said no more, and with his legs dangled over the railing, appeared to resume his newspaper. "'What's the matter?' said I to Scipio. "'Oh, I don't mind if he don't,' Scipio answered. "'Couldn't you see? I tried to head him off from you all I knew, but you just ran in among em yourself. Couldn't you see? Kept hindering and spoiling me with asking those urgent questions of yourn. Why, I had to let you go your way.' Why, that wasn't the ordinary play with the ordinary tenderfoot they treated you to. You ain't a common tenderfoot this trip. You're the foreman's friend. They've hit him through you. That's the way they count it. It's made them encouraged, can't you see? Scipio stated it plainly. And as we ran by the next station, Howard, they harshly yelled, Portland, 1256. We had been passing gangs of workmen on the track, and at that last yell the Virginian rose. 
"'I reckon I'll join the meetin' again,' he said. "'This fillin' and repairin' looks like the washout might have been true.' "'Washout?' said Scipio. "'Bighorn Bridge, they say, four days ago.' "'Then I wish it came this side Rawhide Station.' "'Do you?' drawled the Virginian, and smiling at Scipio, he lounged in through the open door. "'He beats me,' said Scipio, shaking his head. His trail is terrible hard to anticipate. We listened. Work being done on the road, I see, the Virginian was saying, very friendly and conversational. We see it, too, said the voice of Trampas. Seem to be easing their grades some. Roads do. Cheaper to build them the way they want them at the start, a man would think, suggested the Virginian, most friendly. There goes some more Italians. They're Chinese, said Trampas. That's so, acknowledged the Virginian with a laugh. What's he monkeying at now, muttered Scipio. Without cheap foreigners they couldn't afford all this here new grading, the southerner continued. Grading? Can't you tell when a flood's been eating the banks? Why, yes, said the Virginian, sweet as honey. But ain't you heard of the improvements west of Big Timber, all the way to Missoula, this season? I'm talking about them. Oh, talking about them. Yes, I've heard. Good money-saving scheme, ain't it? said the Virginian. Letting a freight run down one hill and up the next as far as she'll go without steam, and shaving the hill down to that point. Now this was an honest engineering fact. Better than setting dudes squinting through telescopes and ciphering over one percent reductions, the southerner commented. It's common sense, assented Trampas. Have you heard the new scheme about the water tanks? I ain't right certain, said the southerner. I must watch this, said Scipio, or I shall bust. He went in, and so did I. They were all sitting over this discussion of the Northern Pacific's recent policy as to betterments, as though they were the board of directors. Pins could have dropped, only nobody would have cared to hear a pin. "'They used to put all their tanks at the bottom of their grades,' said Trampas. "'Why, you get the water easier at the bottom.' "'You can pump it to the top, though,' said Trampas, growing superior, "'and it's cheaper.' That gets me, said the Virginian, interested. Trains after watering can start downhill now and get the benefit of the gravity. It'll cut down operating expenses a heap. That's certainly common sense, exclaimed the Virginian, absorbed. But ain't it kind of tardy? Live and learn, so they gain speed, too. High speed on half the coal this season, until the accident. Accident? said the Virginian, instantly. Yellowstone Limited. Man fired at engine driver. Train was flying past that quick, the bullet broke every window and killed a passenger on the back platform. You've been running too much with aristocrats, finished Trampas and turned on his heel. Ha, hew, began the enthusiast, but his neighbor gripped him to silence. This was a triumph too serious for noise. Not a mutineer moved, and I felt cold. "'Trampas,' said the Virginian, "'I thought you'd be afeard to try it on me.' Trampas whirled round. His hand was at his belt. "'Afraid,' he sneered. 
"'Shorty,' said Scipio, sternly, and leaping upon that youth, took his half-drawn pistol from him. "'I'm obliged to you,' said the Virginian to Scipio. Trampas's hand left his belt. He threw a slight, easy look at his men, and keeping his back to the Virginian, walked out on the platform and sat on the chair where the Virginian had sat so much. "'Don't you comprehend,' said the Virginian to Shorty amiably, "'that this here question has been discussed peaceable by civilized citizens? Now you sit down and be good, and Mr. Lemoyne will return your gun when we're across that broken bridge, if they have got it fixed for heavy trains yet.' "'This train will be lighter when it gets to that bridge,' spoke Trampas, out on his chair. "'Why, that's true, too,' said the Virginian. Maybe none of us are crossing that bighorn bridge now, except me. Funny if you should end by persuading me to quit and go to Rawhide myself. But I reckon I'll not. I reckon I'll worry along to Sunk Creek somehow. Don't forget I'm cooking for you, said Scipio gruffly. I'm obliged to you, said the southerner. You were speaking of a job for me, said Shorty. I'm right obliged. But, you see, I ain't exactly foreman the way this comes out, and my promises might not bind Judge Henry to pay salaries. A push came through the train from forward. We were slowing for the rawhide station, and all began to be busy and to talk. Going up to the mines today? Oh, let's grub first. Guess it's too late, anyway, and so forth, while they rolled and roped their bedding, and put on their coats with a good deal of elbow motion, and otherwise showed off. It was wasted. The Virginian did not know what was going on in the caboose. He was leaning and looking out ahead, and Scipio's puzzled eye never left him. And as we halted for the water tank, the southerner exclaimed, "'They ain't got away yet,' as if it were good news to him. He meant the delayed trains. Four stalled expresses were in front of us, besides several freights, and two hours more at least before the bridge would be ready. Travelers stood and sat about forlorn, near their cars, out in the sagebrush, anywhere. People in hats and spurs watched them, and Indian chiefs offered them painted bows and arrows and shiny horns. "'I reckon them passengers would prefer a leg o' mutton,' said the Virginian to a man loafing near the caboose. "'Bet your life,' said the man. First lot has been stuck here four days.' "'Plum starved, ain't they?' inquired the Virginian. "'Bet your life. They've eat up their dining cars, and they've eat up this town.' "'Well,' said the Virginian, looking at the town, "'I expect the dining cars contained more nourishment.' "'Say, you're about right there,' said the man. He walked beside the caboose as we puffed slowly forward from the water tank to our siding. "'Fine business here if we'd only been ready,' he continued. "'And the Crow agent has let his Indians come over from the reservation. There has been a little beef brought in, and game, and fish, and big money in it, bet your life. Them eastern passengers has just been robbed. I wished I had something to sell.' "'Anything startin' for Rawhide this afternoon?' said Trampas, out of the caboose door. "'Not until morning,' said the man. "'You goin' to the mines?' he resumed to the Virginian. "'Why, 
answered the Southerner, slowly and casually, and addressing himself strictly to the man, while Trampas, on his side, paid obvious inattention. "'This here delay, you see, may unsettle our plans some. But it'll be one of two ways. We're all going to Rawhide, or we're all going to Billings. We're all one party, you see.' Trampas laughed audibly inside the door as he rejoined his men. "'Let him keep up appearances,' I heard him tell them. "'It don't hurt us what he says to strangers.' "'But I'm going to eat hearty either way,' continued the Virginian. "'And I ain't going to be robbed. "'I've been kind of promising myself a treat if we stopped here.' "'Towns eat clean out,' said the man. "'So you tell me. "'But all you folks has forgot one source of revenue "'that you have right close by mighty handy. "'If you have got a gunny sack, I'll show you how to make some money.' "'Bet your life,' said the man.' "'Mr. Lemoyne said the Virginian, "'the outfit's cooking stuff is aboard, "'and if you'll get the fire ready, "'we'll try how frogs' legs go fried.' "'He walked off at once, "'the man following like a dog. "'Inside the caboose rose a gust of laughter. "'Frogs!' muttered Scipio, "'and then turning a blank face to me. "'Frogs!' "'Colonel Cyrus Jones had them on his bill of fare,' I said. "'Frog's legs a la Delmonico.' "'Shoo, I didn't get up that thing. "'They had it when I came. "'Never looked at it. "'Frogs!' "'He went down the steps very slowly with a long frown. "'Reaching the ground, he shook his head. "'That man's trail is surely hard to anticipate,' he said. "'But I must hurry up that fire, "'for his appearance has given me encouragement,' "'Scipio concluded, and became brisk.' Shorty helped him, and I brought wood. Trampas and the other people strolled off to the station, a compact band. Our little fire was built beside the caboose, so the cooking things might be easily reached and put back. You would scarcely think such operations held any interest, even for the hungry, when there seemed to be nothing to cook. A few sticks blazing tamely in the dust, a frying-pan, half a tin bucket of lard, some water, and barren plates and knives and forks, and three silent men attending to them, that was all. But the travelers came to see. These waifs drew near us and stood, a sad, lone, shifting fringe of audience, four to begin with, and then two wandered away, and presently one of these came back, finding it worse elsewhere. "'Supper, boys?' said he. "'Breakfast,' said Scipio, crossly, and no more of them addressed us. I heard them joylessly mention Wall Street to each other, and Saratoga. I even heard the name Bryn Mawr, which is near Philadelphia. But these fragments of home, dropped in the wilderness here in Montana beside a freight caboose, were of no interest to me now. "'Looks like frogs down there, too,' said Scipio. See them marshy slogs full of weeds? We took a little turn and had a sight of the Virginian quite active among the ponds. Hush, I'm getting some thoughts, continued Scipio. He wasn't sorry enough. Don't interrupt me. I'm not, said I. No, but I'd most caught a hold. And Scipio muttered to himself again, 
He wasn't sorry enough. Presently he swore loud and brilliantly. "'Tell ye,' he cried, "'what did he say to Trampas after that play they exchanged over railroad improvements and Trampas put the josh on him? Didn't he say, "'Trampas, I thought you'd be afraid to do it?' "'Well, sir, Trampas had better have been afraid, and that's what he meant. That's where he was bringing it to. Trampas made an awful bad play, then. "'You wait. Glory, but he's a knowing man.' course he wasn't sorry. I guess he had the hardest kind of work to look as sorry as he did. You wait. Wait? What for? Go on, man. What for? I don't know. I don't know. Whatever hand he's been holdin' up, this is the showdown. He's played for a showdown here before the caboose gets off the bridge. Come back to the fire, or Shorty'll be leavin' it go out. Grow happy some, Shorty, he cried on arriving, and his hand cracked on Shorty's shoulder. "'Supper's in sight, Shorty. Food for reflection.' "'None for the stomach?' asked the passenger who had spoken once before. "'We're figuring on that, too,' said Scipio. His crossness had melted entirely away. "'Why, they're cowboys!' exclaimed another passenger, and he moved nearer. From the station Trampas now came back, his herd following him less compactly. They had found famine— and no hope of supplies until the next train from the east. This was no fault of Trampas's, but they were following him less compactly. They carried one piece of cheese, the size of a fist, the weight of a brick, the hue of a corpse, and the passengers, seeing it, exclaimed, "'There's old Faithful again!' and took off their hats. "'You gentlemen met that cheese before, then?' said Scipio, delighted." "'It's been offered me three times a day for four days,' said the passenger. "'Did he want a dollar or a dollar and a half?' Two dollars,' blurted out the enthusiast. And all of us save Trampas fell into fits of imbecile laughter. "'Here comes our grub, anyway,' said Scipio, looking off toward the marshes. And his hilarity sobered away in a moment. "'Well, the train will be in soon,' stated Trampas. I guess we'll get a decent supper without frogs. All interest settled now upon the Virginian. He was coming with his man in his gunny sack, and the gunny sack hung from his shoulder heavily, as a full sack should. He took no notice of the gathering, but sat down and partly emptied the sack. There, said he, very businesslike, to his assistant, that's all we'll want. I think you'll find a ready market for the balance. "'Well, my gracious,' said the enthusiast, "'what fool eats a frog?' "'Oh, I'm fool enough for a tadpole,' cried the passenger, and they began to take out their pocket-books. "'You can cook yours right here, gentlemen,' said the Virginian, with his slow southern courtesy. "'The dining cars don't look like they were fired up.' "'How much will you sell a couple for?' inquired the enthusiast. The Virginian looked at him with friendly surprise. "'Why, help yourself. We're all together yet a while. Help yourselves,' he repeated, to Trampas and his followers. These hung back a moment, then, with a slinking motion, set the cheese upon the earth, and came forward nearer the fire to receive some supper. "'It won't scarcely be Delmonico's style,' said the Virginian to the passengers, "'nor yet St. Augustine.' 
He meant the great Augustin, the traditional chef of Philadelphia, whose history I had sketched for him at Colonel Cyrus Jones's eating palace. Scipio now officiated. His frying-pan was busy, and prosperous odors arose from it. "'Run for a bucket of fresh water, Shorty,' the Virginian continued, beginning his meal. "'Colonel, you cook pretty near good. If you had sold em as advertised, you'd have certainly made a name.' Several were now eating with satisfaction, but not Scipio. It was all that he could do to cook straight. The whole man seemed to glisten. His eye was shut to a slit once more, while the innocent passengers thankfully swallowed. "'Now, you see, you have made some money,' began the Virginian to the native who had helped him get the frogs. "'Bet your life!' exclaimed the man. "'Divvy, won't you?' And he held out half his gains. "'Keep em, returned the Southerner. "'I reckon we're square. "'But I expect they'll not equal Delmonico's, sir,' he said to a passenger. "'Don't trust the judgment of a man as hungry as I am,' exclaimed the traveller with a laugh. And he turned to his fellow travellers. "'Did you ever enjoy supper at Delmonico's more than this?' "'Never,' they sighed. "'Why, look here,' said the traveller. "'What fools the people of this town are. Here we've been all these starving days, and you come and get ahead of them.' "'That's right easy explained,' said the Virginian. I've been where there was big money and frogs, and they ain't been. They're all cattle here. Talk cattle, think cattle, and they're bankrupt in consequence. Fallen through. Ain't that so? He inquired of the native. That's about the way, said the man. It's mighty hard to do what your neighbors ain't doing, pursued the Virginian. Montana is all cattle. And these folks must be cattle, and never notice the country right here is too small for a range, and swampy anyway, and just waitin' to be a frog ranch. At this all wore a face of careful reserve. "'I'm not claimin' to be smarter than you folks here,' said the Virginian, deprecatingly to his assistant. "'But travelin' learns a man many customs.' You wouldn't do the business they done at Tulare, California, north side of the lake. They certainly utilized them hopeless swamps splendid. Of course they put up big capital and went into it scientific, getting advice from the government fish commission and such like knowledge. You see, they had big markets for their frogs, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and clear to New York after the Southern Pacific was through. But up here you could sell to passengers every day like you done this one day. They would get to know you along the line. Competing swamps are scarce. The dining cars would take your frogs, and you would have the Yellowstone Park for four months in the year. Them hotels are anxious to please, and they would buy off you what their eastern patrons esteem as fine eatin', and you folks would be selling something instead of nothing. "'That's a practical idea,' said a traveller, "'and little cost.' "'And little cost,' said the Virginian. "'Would eastern people eat frogs?' inquired the man. "'Look at us,' said the traveller. "'Delmonico doesn't give you such a treat,' said the Virginian. "'Not exactly,' the traveller exclaimed. "'How much would be paid for frogs?' said Trampas to him, "'and I saw Scipio bend closer to his cooking.' 
"'Oh, I don't know,' said the traveller. "'We've paid pretty well, you see.' "'You're late for Tulare, Trampas,' said the Virginian. "'I was not thinking of Tulare, Trampas retorted. Scipio's nose was in the frying-pan. "'Most comical spot you ever struck,' said the Virginian, looking round upon the whole company. He allowed himself a broad smile of retrospect. To hear em talk frogs at Tulare, same as other folks talks hosses or steers or whatever they're raisin' to sell. You'd fall into it yourselves if you started the business. Anything a man's bread and butter depends on, he's going to be earnest about. Don't care if it is a frog. That's so, said the native, and it paid good? The only money in the county was right there, answered the Virginian. It was a dead county, and only frogs was moving. But that business was a fannin' to beat four of a kind. It made you feel strange at first, as I said, for all the men had been cattlemen at one time or another. Till you got accustomed, it would give most anybody a shock to hear em speakin' about herdin' the bulls in a pasture by themselves. The Virginian allowed himself another smile, but became serious again. That was their policy, he explained. Except at certain times a year they kept the bulls separate. The fish commission told them they'd better, and it certainly worked mighty well. It or something did, for gentlemen hush, but there was millions. You'd have said all the frogs in the world had taken charge at two lair. And the money rolled in. Gentlemen hush. Twas a gold mine for the owners. Forty per cent they netted some years, and they paid generous wages, for they could sell to all them French restaurants in San Francisco, you see. And there was the Cliff House, and the Palace Hotel made it a specialty, and the officers took frogs at the Presidio, and Angel Island, and Alcatraz, and Benicia. Los Angeles was beginning its boom. The corner lot sharps wanted something by way of varnish, and so they dazzled eastern investors with advertising to lair frogs clear to New Orleans and New York. Twas only in Sacramento frogs was dull. I expect the California legislature was too ornery for them fine-raised luxuries. They tell of one of them senators that he raked a million out of Los Angeles real estate and started in for a bang-up meal with champagne wanted to scatter his new gold thick and quick, but he got astray among all the fancy dishes, and just yelled right out before the ladies, "'Damn it, bring me forty dollars worth of ham and eggs!' He was a funny senator now. The Virginian paused and finished eating a leg, and then, with diabolic art, he made a feint at wandering to new fields of anecdote. "'Talking of senators,' he resumed, "'Senator Wise, how much did you say wages were at Tulare?' inquired one of the Trampas faction. "'How much? Why, I never knew what the foreman got. The regular hands got a hundred. "'Senator Wise, a hundred a month?' "'Why, it was wet and muddy work, you see. A man risked rheumatism some. He risked it a good deal.' Well, I was going to tell about Senator Wise. When Senator Wise was speaking of his visit to Alaska, Forty per cent, was it? said Trampas. 
"'Oh, I must call my wife,' said the traveller behind me. "'This is what I came west for,' and he hurried away. "'Not forty per cent the bad years,' replied the Virginian. "'The frogs had enemies, same as cattle. "'I remember when a pelican got in the spring pasture "'and the herd broke through the fence.' "'Fence?' said a passenger. "'Ditch, sir, and wire net. "'Every pasture was a square swamp with a ditch around and a wire net. "'You've heard the mournful, mixed-up sound a big bunch of cattle will make? "'Well, sir, as you drove from the railroad to the two-layer frog ranch, "'you could hear em a mile. "'Springtime they'd sing like girls in the organ loft, "'and by August they were about ready to hire out for bass.' and all was fit to be soloists, if I'm a judge. But in a bad year it might only be twenty per cent. The pelican rushed em from the pasture right into the San Joaquin River, which was close by the property. The big balance of the herd stampeded, and though of course they came out on the banks again, the news had went round, and folks below at Hemlin eat most of em just to spite the company. You see, a frog in a river is more hopeless than any maverick loose on the range, and they never struck any plan to brand their stock and prove ownership. "'Well, twenty per cent is good enough for me,' said Trampas, "'if rawhide don't suit me.' "'A hundred a month,' said the enthusiast, and busy calculations began to arise among them. "'It went to fifty per cent,' pursued the Virginian, when New York and Philadelphia got to biddin' against each other, both cities had signs all over em claimin' to furnish the two-layer frog, and both had em all right, and same as cattle trains you'd see frog trains tearin' across Arizona, big glass tanks with wire over em, through to New York, and the frogs starin' out. "'Why, George,' whispered a woman's voice behind me, "'he's merely deceiving them.' He's merely making that stuff up out of his head. Yes, my dear, that's merely what he's doing. Well, I don't see why you imagined I should care for this. I think I'll go back. Better see it out, Daisy. This beats the geysers or anything we're likely to find in the Yellowstone. Then I wish we had gone to Bar Harbor as usual, said the lady, and she returned to her pullman. But her husband stayed. Indeed, the male crowd now was a goodly sight to see, how the men edged close, drawn by a common tie. Their different kinds of feet told the strength of the bond. Yellow, sleeping car-slippers planted miscellaneous and motionless near a pair of Mexican spurs. All eyes watched the Virginian, and gave him their entire sympathy. Though they could not know his motive for it, what he was doing had fallen as light upon them, all except the excited calculators. These were loudly making their fortunes at both Rawhide and Tulare, drugged by their satanically aroused hopes of gold, heedless of the slippers and the spurs. Had a man given any sign to warn them, I think he would have been lynched. Even the Indian chiefs had come to see in their show war bonnets and blankets, they naturally understood nothing of it, yet magnetically knew that the Virginian was the great man, and they watched him with approval. He sat by the fire with the frying-pan, looking his daily self, engaging and saturnine. 
and now, as Trampas declared tickets to California would be dear, and Rawhide had better come first, the Southerner let loose his heaven-born imagination. "'There's a better reason for Rawhide than tickets, Trampas,' said he. "'I said it was too late for Tulare.' "'I heard you,' said Trampas. "'Opinions may differ. You and I don't think alike on several points.' "'God, Trampas,' said the Virginian, "'do you reckon I'd be rotten here on forty dollars "'if Tulare was like it used to be? "'Tulare is broke.' "'What broke it? You're leaving?' "'Revenge broke it, and disease,' said the Virginian, "'striking the frying-pan on his knee, "'for the frogs were all gone. "'At those lurid words their untamed child minds took fire,' and they drew round him again to hear a tale of blood. The crowd seemed to lean nearer. But for a short moment it threatened to be spoiled. A passenger came along, demanding in an important voice, "'Where are these frogs?' "'He was a prominent New York after-dinner speaker,' they whispered me, and out for holiday in his private car. Reaching us and walking to the Virginian, he said cheerily, "'How much do you want for your frogs, my friend?' "'You got a friend here?' said the Virginian. "'That's good, for you need care taken of you.' And the prominent after-dinner speaker did not further discommode us. "'That's worth my trip,' whispered a New York passenger to me. "'Yes, it was a case of revenge,' resumed the Virginian, "'and disease.' There was a man named St. Augustine got run out of Domingo, which is a Dago island. He come to Philadelphia, and he was dead broke. But St. Augustine was a live man, and he saw Philadelphia was full of Quakers that dressed plain and eat humdrum. So he started cooking Domingo way for em, and they caught right a hold. Terrapin he gave em, and croquettes, and he'd use forty chickens to make a broth he called consomme. And he got rich, and Philadelphia got well known, and Delmonico in New York he got jealous. He was the cook that had the say-so in New York. "'Was Delmonico one of them Italians?' inquired a fascinated mutineer. "'I don't know, but he acted like one. Lorenzo was his front name. He aimed to cut "'Domingo's throat?' breathed the enthusiast. "'Aim to cut away the trade from St. Augustine "'and put Philadelphia back where he thought she belonged. "'Frogs was the fashionable rage then. "'These foreign cooks set the fashion in Eaton, "'same as foreign dressmakers do women's clothes. "'Both cities was catching and swallowing all the frogs "'Tulare could throw at em. "'So he—' "'Lorenzo?' said the enthusiast. Yes, Lorenzo Delmonico. He bid a dollar a tank higher, and St. Augustine raised him fifty cents, and Lorenzo raised him a dollar, and St. Augustine shoved her up three. Lorenzo, he didn't expect Philadelphia would go that high, and he got hot in the collar, and flew around his kitchen in New York, and claimed he'd twist St. Augustine's Domingo tail for him and crack his ossified system. Lorenzo raised his language to a high temperature, they say, and then quite sudden off he starts for Tulare. 
He buys tickets over the Santa Fe, and he goes a-fannin' and a-foggin'. But gentlemen, hush! The very same day, St. Augustine, he tears out of Philadelphia. He traveled by the way o' Washington, and out he comes a-fannin' and a-foggin' over the Southern Pacific. Of course, Tulare didn't know nothing of this. All it knowed was how the frog market was on soarin' wings, and it was feelin' like a flight o' rockets. If only there'd been some preparation, a telegram or something, the disaster would never have occurred. But Lorenzo and St. Augustine was that absorbed watchin' each other, for, you see, the, the Santa Fe and the Southern Pacific come together at Mojave, and the two cooks traveled a matter of two hundred and ten miles in the same car. They never thought about a telegram, and when they arrove, breathless, and started in to screechin' what they'd give for the monopoly, why, them unsuspectin' Tulare boys got amused at em. I never heard just all they done, but they had Lorenzo singin' and dancin' while St. Augustine played the fiddle for him and one of Lorenzo's heels did get a trifle grazed. Well, them two cooks quit that ranch without disclosing their identity, and soon as they got to a safe distance, they swore eternal friendship in their excitable foreign way, and they went home over the Union Pacific, sharing the same stateroom. Their revenge killed frogs. The disease... How killed frogs? demanded Trampas just killed em. Delmonico and St. Augustine wiped frogs off the slate of fashion. Not a banker in Fifth Avenue will touch one now of another banker's round watchin' em. And if ever you see a man that hides his feet and won't take off his socks and company, he has worked in them two-layer swamps and got the disease. Catch him wadin', and you'll find he's web-footed. Frogs are dead, Trampas, and so are you. "'Rise up, liars, and salute your king!' yelled Scipio. "'Oh, I'm in love with you!' and he threw his arms round the Virginian. "'Let me shake hands with you,' said the traveller, who had failed to interest his wife in these things. "'I wish I was going to have more of your company.' "'Thank you, sir,' said the Virginian. Other passengers greeted him, and the Indian chiefs came, saying, "'How?' because they followed their feelings without understanding." "'Don't show so humbled, boys,' said the deputy foreman to his most sheepish crew. "'These gentlemen from the east have been enjoying you some, I know. "'But think what a weary weight they have had here. "'And you insisted on playing the game with me this way, you see. "'What outlet did you give me? "'Didn't I have it to do? "'And I'll tell you one thing for your consolation. "'When I got to the middle of the frogs, I most believed it myself.' and he laughed out the first laugh I had heard him give. The enthusiast came up and shook hands. That led off, and the rest followed, with Trampas at the end. The tide was too strong for him. He was not a graceful loser, but he got through this, and the Virginian eased him down by treating him precisely like the others, apparently. Possibly the supreme, the most American, moment of all was when word came that the bridge was open, and the Pullman trains, with noise and triumph, began to move westward at last. Everyone waved farewell to everyone, craning from steps and windows, so that the cars twinkled with hilarity, 
and in twenty minutes the whole procession in front had moved, and our turn came. "'Last chance for Rawhide,' said the Virginian. "'Last chance for Sunk Creek,' said a reconstructed mutineer, and all sprang aboard. There was no question who had won his spurs now. Our caboose trundled on to Billings along the shingly, cotton-wooded Yellowstone, and as the plains and bluffs and the distant snow began to grow well known, even to me, we turned to our baggage that was to come off, since camp would begin in the morning. Thus I saw the Virginian carefully re-wrapping Kenilworth, that he might bring it to its owner unharmed, and I said, "'Don't you think you could have played poker with Queen Elizabeth?' "'No, I expect she'd have beat me,' he replied. "'She was a lady.' It was at Billings, on this day, that I made those reflections about equality. For the Virginian had been equal to the occasion. That is the only kind of equality which I recognize. End of chapter 16